Well, it is a joy to be with you as we gather again this morning to learn from Jesus and hear from his word. Would you please turn in your Bibles to our passage this morning, John chapter 5, verses 1 through 47. All throughout the Gospel of John, we have been confronted with questions about who Jesus is. We've seen Jesus do many signs in John 1 through 3. We've seen Jesus speak in John 3 and John 4. And John has told us that all the signs he's been including have been so that we would know better who Jesus is. But in our passage this morning, John 5, we see Jesus himself speak clearly about who he is. In it, we will see that Jesus claims to be God. Now this claim, then, as today, was deeply controversial. In fact, as we'll see in our passage this morning, it immediately led to persecution of Jesus by religious authorities who heard exactly what Jesus was saying, but did not believe his word. And so, this passage Leads up to that in verses 1 through 18. Jesus in verse 17 makes this claim to Godhood. And then the remainder of this passage, verses 19 through 47, is Jesus on trial. Jesus defending his claim to be God. And so in this passage, we need to see what Jesus claims for himself that he is God, but we need to not just know what he says about himself, but we also each need to make a decision. Do we believe Jesus' words? Will we believe his claim that he is indeed God? Or will we reject him? That is the choice that this passage forces on us. That is the choice that Jesus' own words force on us. And all of this, as long as this passage is, is all focused on that. So would you please stand, if you're able, for the reading of God's word. And my hope is that you would believe him in his claims. John 5, verses 1 through 47. It's a long passage, so if you need to sit down, feel free to sit down as we go. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. Now that day was the Sabbath. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed, It is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, The man who healed me, that man said to me, Take up your bed and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. 
And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own Father, making himself equal with God. So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all that he himself is doing, and greater works than these will he show him so that you may marvel. For as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom he will. For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out, those who have done good to the resurrection of life, and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining light, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If anyone, if another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. This is obviously a long passage, and I know it's a lot of ground to cover in one sermon. But I felt it was important to treat this as a whole because it is all 
one long section focused on the truth that Jesus is God. How many of you like courtroom mystery TV shows? Some of you. My younger sister, Nicole, who some of you have met, she's been here once, she loved growing up shows like Perry Mason or Matlock where you have a trial at the end and in the testimony in the courtroom, the truth comes out. That's sort of the structure we have in our passage this morning. Verses 1 through 16, which we'll spend a little bit of time on, are the events that lead up to the trial scene, if you will. It is Jesus' healing of a man, a great sign, a miracle, that leads to opposition. The religious leaders accuse him of being in rebellion against God through his actions on the Sabbath. And Jesus defends himself in verse 17 by claiming to be God. We'll look at that together. But it is that defense of his actions on the Sabbath, the actions of verses 1 through 17, that leads to further charges in verse 18, where the religious leaders say, oh, not only are you a Sabbath breaker, you're also a blasphemer. You are claiming to be God, but you're not really God, we don't think, and Therefore, you are setting yourself up as a rival God against the one true God. So they are accusing him of being rebellious against God and as part of that rebellion of setting himself up as a rival God to the one true God. And so it is against those charges of blasphemy and rebellion against God that Jesus is defending himself in verses 19 through 47. And so he defends himself, as we'll see, by claiming to not only be God, but to be in perfect alignment with the Father. And then he turns the tables from defense to offense in verses 30 through 47, where he says, not only am I God, not only am I perfectly aligned with the Father, but actually you who are sitting in judgment on me, you are the ones who are in rebellion against God. And so this whole passage all flows together and all is focused on whether Jesus is telling the truth. If Jesus is telling the truth about himself being God, then we need to believe in him. But if he's lying, then he is in rebellion against God and he is a blasphemer. And so this question forces us to grapple with whether Jesus is who he says he is. So, the first thing we see in verses 1 through 18, and we're not going to spend a whole lot of time here, is that Jesus claims that he is God. This isn't the first time this claim has been made about Jesus in John. It's not the last time Jesus will make this claim for himself, but he does claim this. This whole scene is set up by a miracle that took place in Jerusalem. We're told that Jesus had gone to Jerusalem on a feast day, verse 1, and he'd come to a pool. Uh, in, in Jerusalem that was famous for its healing powers. And so people who were blind or lame or paralyzed would come in hopes of entering into this pool at a particular time and so being healed. And when Jesus gets there, verses 5 and 6, there was a man there who had been an invalid, who'd been unable to walk for 38 years. It's a really long time. And Jesus seems to have compassion on him. Verse 6, we read Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time. So Jesus sees him. Jesus sees the suffering he's been going through. 
And Jesus asks him, do you want to be healed? The man says, well, I've been unable to be healed. I'm always too slow. I'm paralyzed. So no one helps me get into the pool. And so I'm stuck here. And what does Jesus say to him? Verse 8, get up, take up your bed and walk. And at once the man was healed and he took up his bed and walked. Now, so far, so good, right? This seems like a beautiful story of Jesus having compassion on someone, of Jesus doing a miracle, a sign that points to his identity as the Christ. The Christ was spoken of as one who would heal the lame and open the eyes of the blind. But there's a twist. Verse 9, Now that day was the Sabbath. And evidently, what Jesus did here is controversial because The religious leaders, verse 10, see this man healed and see him walking and carrying his mat on the Sabbath and they confront him. And they say, it is the Sabbath and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. And what's going on here? Well, in the Old Testament, God had set aside one day, the Sabbath, which was to be a holy day of rest to God. And there were rules in the Old Testament that prohibited certain activities, especially work. For example, in in the Old Testament, it talked about how you weren't to go gather firewood on the Sabbath and to carry that firewood. That was considered work on the Sabbath and you were to rest and honor God with your rest. Now, over time, the religious leaders of Israel had added all kinds of extra laws to the Sabbath and they had said, well, if you can't carry, one of the laws was if you can't carry firewood on the Sabbath, then you can't carry anything heavy on the Sabbath, no matter what it is. And so when they see this man carrying his mat, As Jesus had told him to do, they say he's breaking the Sabbath, even though nothing he's doing actually violates anything in the Old Testament. And so they confront this man and he deflects. He answers them, verse 11, "Uh, uh, the man who healed me, he told me to do this. He told me to take up my bed and walk. It's not my fault. He told me what to do. And they asked him, well, who was it? Who told you to do this on the Sabbath? He's like, "I, I don't know the guy. I don't know who it was. And we're told, verse 13, this was in part because he didn't know who Jesus was. So this isn't some sterling example of faith or of someone knowing Jesus really well or necessarily of courage under pressure. He's kind of just like, I don't know. This guy told me to do it. I did it. I don't know who he is. Leave me alone. Afterward, we're told, verse 14, Jesus found him in the temple. And it seems that he confronts this healed man. He says, see, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse may happen to you. So evidently this man had been sinning in some way and that had led to his paralysis. Scripture doesn't say that all suffering that we go through is the result of sin, but sometimes it is. And that seems to be the case with the man. So Jesus talks with him, confronts him. And does the man say, you're right, Jesus, I'll follow you. I will believe in you. I'll turn from sin. Is that what he does? No, verse 16, what's the first thing he does after Jesus returns to him? Now that he knows it's Jesus, he books it to the religious leaders and tells them that it was Jesus. He snitches, if you will. As the man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And then we read verse 16, that this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. So all of this is leading up to this conflict around the Sabbath. So they see Jesus as a Sabbath breaker, as one that they believe is disobeying God, one who is 
engaged in wickedness and who from their perspective is leading other people into wickedness. Not only is he breaking the Sabbath, he's telling this healed guy to take up his mat on the Sabbath. And it is Jesus' response to them that just heightens things further. Verse 17, Jesus answered them, My Father is working until now, and I am working. Here Jesus is claiming the privileges that belonged only to God. In Jewish thought, and there was a long-running debate at the time about does God have to rest on the Sabbath? They said, we all have to rest on the Sabbath, but does God rest on the Sabbath? And the rabbis at the time concluded no, because if God were to rest on the Sabbath, then the world would fall apart because he's sovereign and he sustains everything and he brings the sun and the rain. And so they'd reach the conclusion that all human beings needed to keep Sabbath, but that God did not have to rest on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus, in verse 7, and they taught that the Father was always working even on the Sabbath. And so when Jesus answers them and says, my Father is working until now and I am working, he's saying he's not saying I didn't do something on the Sabbath. That's not his defense. He's saying my Father works on the Sabbath. And I work on the Sabbath. He's saying, I am allowed to work on the Sabbath. I have the privileges of working on the Sabbath. And for Jews, the only way that would be true is if Jesus is God. So Jesus is claiming the privilege of God to work on the Sabbath as his defense. He's saying, I'm God, and therefore I can do this. And it's clear that the Jews know this is exactly what he's saying. We read verse 18, This was why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So they see in Jesus' words a claim to be God. And they say, you're blaspheming. You are setting yourself up as a rival to the one true God, in their view. And so we need to get this clear in our minds. Jesus claims to be God. Claims it here when he claims the privileges of godhood in John 5.17. He'll claim it later in John 8 where he says, before Abraham was, I am. John the narrator claims that Jesus is God in John 1.1 when he says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John the Baptist claimed this about Jesus in John 1 when he said, I'm preparing the way for Jesus, and he said that he was fulfilling the prophecies of Isaiah that spoke of preparing the way for God. And so Jesus is claiming he's God. John the narrator claims Jesus is God. John the Baptist claims Jesus is God. And there's no question here about whether that's what Jesus is claiming. Even the Jews realize that Jesus is claiming to be God. They don't say, no, he didn't really say that. They know that's what he's saying, and that's why they're even more angry with him in verse 18 and why they want him killed. Because they believe that he is lying. They don't believe his word. They think he is rebelling against God and setting himself up as God's rival. Now, if Jesus is wrong in his claim to be God, then they're right. If Jesus claims to be God and is not truly God, then he is a blasphemer. If Jesus claims to be God and is not truly God, then he is setting himself up as a rival to God. But if Jesus is telling the truth, and he is indeed God, then that changes everything. 
And Jesus is then going to go on in the remainder of our passage to defend his claim. He's going to defend it in two main ways. The first is he's going to continue to say that he does things and is deserving of things that only God does, like give life. He's going to say he is to be honored as the Father is honored, so a claim to equality. But he's also going to claim that he is in alignment with the Father. So their claim is that he's disobeying God and that he's setting himself as a rival against God. They're butting heads. He's going to say, no, I and the Father are in alignment. And it's actually you who are rejecting me who are opposed to God. So let's walk quickly through what Jesus says. And we won't cover every nuance of it, but we'll try to work our way through it. First thing we see in Jesus' defense is that he is aligned with the Father. And we see this in verses 19 through 29. Notice what Jesus says, verse 19. Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of his own accord, but only what he sees the Father doing. So remember, the context is Jesus is defending his actions and defending his actions by claiming that he's God. And he says, I'm not kind of lone rangering it off on my own. I'm not doing anything that runs contrary to the will of the Father. I only do that which I see the Father doing. I only do that which is in alignment with Him. For whatever the Father does, that the Son does likewise. He says, I'm not rebelling against God, not rebelling against the Father. I'm not in opposition to the Father. We are aligned. And then he goes on to speak of the close relationship between the Father and the Son. He says, verse 20, For the Father loves the Son and shows Him all that He Himself is doing. So the Father loves the Son. This is speaking of the relations within the triune Godhead. The Father shows the Son all that He Himself is doing. And He actually has will show the Son greater works that the Son might do, that other people might see and be astonished. So He's saying, I and the Father were in alignment. The Father loves me, I love the Father, the Father shows me, and I do what the Father does. There's no conflict between us. He's saying, we're not enemies, I'm not a rival God to the Father. I'm certainly not rebellious and disobedient against the Father. He continues, he says that the Father raises the dead and gives them life, so also the Son gives life to whom He will. Now here, Again, we have Jesus saying that he does things that Jews believed only God did. So many of the rabbis at the time taught that only God had the power to give life. That only God had the power to bring the dead and to raise them. And so here Jesus is claiming for himself divine privileges, divine responsibilities that belonged only to God. And the Jews would have known this. But he's not claiming that he's exercising these apart from the will of the Father. He's saying, I'm exercising these divine divine activities in concert with the Father. Then he goes on to say that the Father entrusts judgment to the Son. Verse 22, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. So again, we have this, they're aligned, right? The Father and Son aren't at cross purposes. They're working together. And the Father has entrusted the Son with all judgment. We go on to read 23. Why has the Father entrusted the Son with all judgment? That all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So this 
makes clear that the Son is not subordinate to the Father. It's not like the Father is God and the Son is not, or that the Father is worthy of greater honor than the Son. Jesus says the Son is to be honored just as the Father is honored. There's an equality. He's saying that He is worthy of the same honor as the Father, which indicates that He's God, but also that they're aligned. And then we continue on. He says, whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent Him. So to reject the Son is to reject the Father. And he goes on to say, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but is passed from death to life. So there's all this emphasis that he makes that he is in perfect alignment with the Father and that he is worthy of the same honor as the Father, that he does the same things that the Father does, And so in all of this, Jesus is both claiming to be God, so he's rejecting the charge of blasphemy, but he's also claiming to be in alignment with the Father in such a way that the charges that they're leveling against him, saying that he is an enemy of God or disobedient or rebellious, he's saying that those claims are false because he's only doing what the Father has entrusted for him to do. He's only doing that which is in line with the Father He is in perfect alignment with the Father because He is God, just as the Father is God. Now, you might notice, if you're one of these religious leaders who's sitting in judgment on Jesus, if what Jesus is saying is true, you might be sweating a little bit. If it's true that all judgment has been entrusted to Jesus and you're sitting in judgment on Him, that might not be the best place to be. And Jesus makes clear that those who believe him and believe his word are those who believe the Father. They're the ones who believe the Father who sent him. And that those who don't honor the Son don't honor the Father. So if Jesus is right that he and the Father are aligned, that he's only doing what the Father has told him to do, and then you're rejecting what he's doing, you're not just rejecting Jesus, you're rejecting the Father. You can't love the Father if you reject Jesus because the Father has sent Jesus. And so Jesus is saying, you either embrace me and so embrace the Father, or you reject me and so reject the Father. And in the end, on the final day, when I sit in judgment, he says, Those who believe in me, who believe my claims about myself, will enter into life. Verse 24, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. If you believe in me, Jesus says, there's life. If you believe my word about myself, that I am God, and that I am who I say I am, that I am sent by the Father, you will have life. And so my hope is that all of you here, if you're on the fence about who Jesus is, that you will believe what he says about himself. That you will believe that he is God and that you will embrace him. But there's a second danger, and that is to just reject Jesus, to reject what he says about himself, and so to come under judgment. He goes on to say, verse 25, Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here, When the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God, that's Jesus, 
and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. This is a reference to Old Testament prophecies that spoke of the Son of Man, which is this figure who shows up in Daniel 7, who would sit in judgment. And he says this, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of judgment. So there's life and there's judgment. And which one you will receive on the final day when Jesus sits in judgment will depend on how you respond to Him. If you believe His Word, you will have life. If you reject His Word, you will not find eternal life. You will be raised to eternal judgment. And this leads to a very sobering conclusion in verses 30 through 47 where Jesus sort of turns the tables on his accusers and says, I'm not the one on trial here. You're the ones on trial here. Because the Father has witnessed to me. John the Baptist has witnessed to me. The Scriptures have witnessed to me. Moses has witnessed to me. He's saying you've had all these witnesses who God has sent who are pointing you to me and yet you're rejecting me. And so when you reject me, you're not just rejecting me the Son, Jesus says, you're actually rejecting the Father. And so you are coming under judgment. He ends on a warning against rejecting the Son and so rejecting the Father. Notice what he says, verses 30-47. through 47. He says, I can do nothing on my own, As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So here again, he's he's emphasizing this. He's saying, I'm not not off on my own. I'm not doing anything that contradicts the Father's will. I'm in perfect alignment with him. As I hear, I judge. I'm not seeking my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then he goes on to list a number of witnesses that they have rejected. It says, don't just take my word for it. Verse 31, if I alone am the one bearing witness, my testimony is not true, but there is another, referring to the Father, who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. He says, God is my witness that I am who I say I am. And so if you reject me, you're not just rejecting me, you're rejecting the Father whom you claim to love. And he goes on to list other witnesses. Verse 33 says, You sent to John, referring to John the Baptist, and he told you about me. But he says it's not just man's testimony. It's not just John's testimony. He he says, But I say these things so that you may be saved. And he says, John was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. This is a reference to Psalm 138, where God had promised to send a light who would point to the Messiah. So he says, God sent you John, and John told you who I was, and you didn't believe John. Then he goes on. It wasn't just John that they rejected. He says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. I also do all these great works that God has given me to do. Verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me. So he says, I'm doing all these works that the Father has sent me to do. They're in alignment with the Father. 
They are fulfilling these Old Testament prophecies that you should know about. But you've rejected the messenger God sent John. You've rejected the signs that I'm doing that God has given me to do, that the Father has given me to do. Jesus is also God. He says you've rejected John's testimony. You've rejected the sign testimony that the Father has given me to do. Verse 37, he says, The Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. So you're rejecting the Father's voice. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. So you've rejected the testimony of John sent by God. You've rejected the testimony of the signs I do that were given to me by the Father. You've rejected the testimony of the Father himself. goes on to say, you've even rejected the Scripture's testimony about me. The Scriptures given by God point to me, Jesus says. He says, I know you don't love the Father because you don't have His Word abiding in you, for verse 38, because if you did, you would receive me. Verse 39, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. He says, you guys are the religious experts. You're the ones with your fancy degrees. You spend all your time poring over the Old Testament. And you think that in them you have eternal life, that you're right with God and you're finding the truth. But they, Jesus says, bear witness about me. And yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. He says, you're the experts. You know this book that's all about me and you know it backwards and forwards, but you still won't come to me and believe. And he goes on to say, this is really not because of something wrong with me. It's something wrong with you. Jesus says. He says the reason that they aren't embracing Him, the reason they're rejecting Him and so rejecting the Father is because they don't love the Father in the first place, even though they claim to. He says, I do not receive glory from people, but I know, verse 42, that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name and you do not receive me. He says, if you loved the Father, who you claim to know from the Scriptures, you would love me and you would welcome me. But the problem is really that you don't love the Father, and that's why you don't love me. Rather, you just love yourselves. Verse 44, he says, How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He says, you're studying God's Word, but not because you love God, because you love being the important religious scholar, the one everyone respects. He says, you don't love the Father, and that's why you don't love me. Because to reject Jesus is not just to reject Jesus, it's to reject the Father. And so our response to Jesus shows our response to the Father. And Jesus says, I'm not the one on trial here, you are the ones on trial, because by rejecting me, you show that you reject the Father, as evidenced by you rejecting all the ways that he's told you about me. You rejected John, you rejected the Scriptures, You rejected my works. You reject all these things because you reject the Father. And he concludes with a sobering indictment. Verse 45 through 47, he says, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. Now again, this is stinging because in the thought of the time, the religious leaders believed that Faithful Jews on the final day of judgment when they stood before God would have a defense attorney. And guess who they thought that defense attorney would be? Moses. 
And so Jesus is saying, you guys think you're experts on all of the Old Testament. You claim to love God. You believe that Moses is going to be in your corner when you stand in the final judgment defending you and saying that you're all faithful to God. But really, he's not going to be on the defense's bench. He's going to be the prosecuting attorney. He says, Moses will not defend you on the final day. Moses, even now, is indicting you in the court of heaven. He's prosecuting a case against you because he wrote everything he wrote about me to point to me. All the scriptures point to me, Jesus says. They're all looking to me. And if you love the Father, and if you actually love the scriptures, Jesus says, you would see that. But because you don't love the Father, you don't love me, Jesus says, and because you don't love the me, it shows that you don't really love anything that you claim to love. You don't love God. You don't really love His Word. You don't love what Moses wrote you. And so Moses will be your prosecuting attorney. He's the one who's going to argue the case against you. I won't have to do it because Moses will do it. Jesus says. So what are we to do with all of this? First, we ought to believe Jesus' word. Jesus is God. He claims this. He showed it through his works. He was pointed to in the Old Testament by Moses and by others. The Father testified about him. John the Baptist testified about him. John's Gospel testifies about him. We need to believe that Jesus the Son is God. We need to believe his word. And if we do believe his word and we do embrace him, it shows that not only do we love him, we love the Father. But if we reject Jesus, we aren't just rejecting Jesus. We're rejecting the Father. Now, most of us are not Torah scholars. We don't, we don't live in that world. But there are many, perhaps some in this room, many in our town who would reject that Jesus is God. For example, down the street on Canton, the Mormon church would reject that Jesus is God. Down the highway, down by Fall River Health, the Jehovah's Witnesses would reject that Jesus is God. There are many in our community, perhaps some in this room, who reject this. But to reject that is not just to reject Jesus' deity. It's to reject what this whole book is about. It's to reject the Father who wrote this book. It's to reject the Son who is held up on display in this book. And it's not just to get something wrong. It's not just to make an error. It is to willfully reject God and to come under judgment. It's a serious matter, and it's something that we need to get right. Whether Jesus is God or not is not something we can agree to disagree on. It's not a negligible matter. It's not something that isn't really all that important, some academic question for scholars and theologians to debate. It is at the core of our faith. And our response to Jesus is everything. It's the difference between life, when he sits in judgment, and death. It's the difference between salvation and damnation. And so we need to have a clear picture of this. We need to know that Jesus is God. We need to honor Him just as we honor the Father. We need to know that He is perfectly aligned with the Father and the Spirit. And we need to believe this. To believe anything less is to call Jesus a liar and to reject not only Him, 
but the Father as well. But the good news is that if we do believe this, we have eternal life. If we do believe this, when the Son speaks His Word to us on the final day, we will come out to the resurrection of life. Not resurrection to condemnation, but resurrection into the life that the Father has given the Son, that the Son gives to us. We enter into the blessing and beauty of our Lord's presence. We will have great rejoicing in that day. And so this is serious matters. These matter. We we should want our friends and neighbors who don't know this to believe this. But we can know and we can rejoice in the fact that this is true. That the Jesus we love is God. The Jesus we love will bring us life. That the Jesus we love is perfectly aligned with the Father. And that the Jesus we love is worthy of all honor. Let us believe that. And if you have questions about this, and you're like, I just find this really hard to believe, I would really love to talk with you after. My hope is that we would all know Jesus rightly, that we would love him, that we would honor him, and so hear his voice and raise to life, and that none of us on that day will hear resurrection to judgment. Let us pray together. Our Father, we thank you for sending the Son, for witnessing to the Son, for entrusting judgment to the Son, for giving us life through the Son. We ask that you would help us to honor the Son just as we honor you, Father. That you would help us to share the reality of who he is with others in our communities or in our family that don't yet believe this. We ask that if there are any here today who don't yet believe that Jesus is the Son, who are rebelling against you in that way, that they would cease to reject you, Father, by rejecting the Son, and that they would instead honor the Son and enter into life, honoring you through that. We ask all this in the name of Jesus, the Son, true God of true God. Pray this in his name. Amen.